0: Thank you for joining the McCain Institute's Authors and Insights Book Talk series, a series of discussions with authors of important newly released books on politics, policy, and leadership. My husband fought his whole life to promote character-driven leadership, and it's vitally important today to carry that legacy forward by any means necessary. Today's installment will feature Seamus Hughes, Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University and an expert on terrorism, homegrown violent extremism, and countering violent extremism. He will be talking about his book, Homegrown, ISIS in America, with McCain Institute Senior Director for Preventing Targeted Violence, Brett Steele. This conversation will detail how and why ISIS was able to radicalize and recruit a new generation of jihadist sympathizers in America through the means of social media. Thank you, Seamus, for joining us today. We hope everyone enjoys what will be a very insightful conversation.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you, Cindy, for that great introduction. Welcome, everyone, to another installment of Authors and Insights book talk series presented by the McCain Institute for International Leadership. In this series, we interview prominent authors of new books on politics, policy, and leadership to affirm the importance of character-driven leadership in today's society. Today, we are joined by Seamus Hughes to talk about his book, Homegrown, ISIS in America, where he details the threat ISIS poses in America from firsthand interviews of former American Islamic State members and the law enforcement officials who track them down. Seamus, for as long as I've known you, you've gone out of your way to understand individuals who have radicalized violence. What prompted you to devote your career to studying this product topic and collaborate on this book?
2: First of all, Brett, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's nice to um, talk to an old friend. I also want to thank the McCain Institute for for having me. I had the opportunity to work with Senator McCain when I was a congressional staffer 15 years ago, and he was always a man of character and and totally like it was. So I always appreciated um, that aspect uh, of him, among other things. Um, So, why did I, why am I drawn to kind of folks who join foreign terrorist organizations? Um, the, The simple fact is because I like a good story, right? Um, what makes a person tick? Um, why does someone go from a seemingly normal life in the middle of America to going to join an Islamic State in Syria and Iraq or so-called Islamic State? Um, and so I just want to get to that root of it, right? What drives them? Um, terrorism is kind of the, the end result, but it's really the, the, the buildup up to that point is what really interests me. Um, With also the goal of, if you understand it, then maybe you can prevent it, right? So if you can understand what the drivers of these folks are, um, maybe there's some government programs or non-governmental stuff you can kind of throw at it and see if you can get uh, at it so you don't have this other wave of, of ISIS, right? So I don't have to write a book again in five years because I don't like write a book, but also because I don't want to uh, see that happen again.
1: So that sparks my next question. It can be hard for observers to understand, why would Americans choose to join ISIS?
2: Yeah, it's a variety of different reasons, right? Um, you know, at some places you have folks who just kind of want to watch the world burn, right? Individuals that are drawn to the violence, they see the beheadings and they want to be part of that and you know, shoot AK-47s and RPGs. Um, but there's something a little bit more nuanced than that for a lot of these folks. Um, it's a sense of belonging. It's a sense of, of trying to be part of something bigger, right? You know, when I started my career, I'm um, looking at homegrown terrorism, like I said, 15, 20 years ago. We had about five or six cases a year. Wasn't that many, maybe 10. Um, with ISIS, we had you know something north of 80, 90 cases in 2014, and that's 1,000 active investigations. So 90 criminal cases, but 1,000 active investigations. And the, the real driver was the announcement of a so-called caliphate, right? And so we always think of terrorism as kind of this, um, understandably so, this kind of negative thing, right? Violence, things like that. But ISIS married that up with kind of what they saw as a a positive message. Come join us for this so-called utopian society, however jaded and wrong that is, um, and you can build something here. And a lot of our folks were drawn to that message, Um, however wrong that message may be. But you can kind of track the announcement of Baghdadi with his $20,000 Rolex in the Mosul mosque, announcing the caliphate, um, with the number of folks traveling over there. Right. They had a message and they had a place to, 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 to live out that message. And so that did pull a lot of people. It's basically a siren call.
1: So your book classifies American ISIS adherence into several different categories. Um, and that speaks to kind of those different messages you were just referencing. Can you briefly explain the different types
2: of roles Americans played in ISIS. Yeah, I mean, the, the sub subtext of our, our book is homegrown ISIS in America. And that word ISIS in America can be a bit scary, right? But they're not all created equally. equal. And so on one side of the spectrum, you've got a you know 17 year old kid tweeting to 4,000 followers on online. Another side of the spectrum, you have a guy running a battalion of foreign fighters. who used to live in Detroit and now he's doing that there. Um, and so we wanted to kind of dive into it. And so we, Went through, I don't know, something north of 20,000 pages of legal documents, filed a bunch of motions to unseal records, traveled to tri- to trials around the country, talked to FBI agents on and off the record, U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys, folks who came back from Syria and Iraq and things like that um, to figure out what made them tick, right? And you can kind of categorize them, you, should, you can categorize them like three to four different ways, right? You know, the first is, is what we're all kind of used to when we think about um, this, which is violence, right? The terrorist. San Bernardino, Pulse nightclub, Ohio State uh, car, like the individuals who manifest their support in terrorism through um, acts of violence. And in many times, those are individuals who, uh, for a variety of different reasons, either couldn't travel or did not want to travel to Syria and Iraq, and so focus their their things inwards. But the vast majority of the ISIS in America folks fall in that second category, which is travelers. And I'd say travelers instead of foreign fighters, because some of them do go over there and, and join up and shoot guns and build bombs, but others become kind of Joe citizen in the Islamic State. You know, I interviewed a guy who changed oil for the Islamic State, um, was working for the Emir of Logistics. Um, most of our folks fall in the travelers. They heard the message from Baghdadi, they wanted to get on a plane, they get to Turkey and they cross the border. And then the other categories are, are e-activist, individuals who either you don't, don't travel to Syria Iraq, usually because they're on the no-fly list or they're under investigation, or um, they just don't have the means or will to commit acts of violence, thank God, um, and they still want to be part of it, right? And so those e-activists are like Safi Yasin from Missouri, who um, you know is at her house, and she's got, I don't think, something north of 72 burner Twitter accounts, and she's just pushing out propaganda, um, trying to connect folks who want to go to Syria with folks that are in Syria to travel. And then finally, I think this one, the last category is one that I don't think it's enough play, but it probably should, um, which is the ideologues. And these are many ways the folks to kind of bless the operation. Um, think of like Anwar Laki, Abdullah al from Jamaica, um, a variety of different folks where um, they say it's okay, right? Because you know most mainstream um, Muslim American leaders would say, no, you can't go to Syria, Iraq it's not allowed for a variety of different religious and, and political and government reasons. Um, and so you're looking for that kind of justification and largely, you're finding that online. And so the ideologues play a, a very important role um, to try to get people over the hump. Um, it's what the NYPD used to call the spiritual sanctioner, right? These individuals who kind of give them the final okay, the, the green light that it's cool um, to go over there.
1: And some didn't only say it's okay, they said it was required,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. This is your window, right? The, the, you know, the Islamic State only comes up um, every couple centuries. So if you're gonna go, you got to go now, right? Uh, and so that's that's kind of if you missed your window, um, you, you shouldn't you have to go. It's required.
1: So a foreign head of state once told me that he thought America's levels of travelers were lower than some of our allies in Europe um, on a per capita basis because we had the greatest counter-narrative in his opinion, which was the American dream. To a different conclusion that uh, is more nuanced, why do you think our per capita numbers of travelers were lower than many of our allies?
2: I would never discount the the joy that is the Norman Rockwell painting of a white picket fence and a, and a dog and three three 3.2 kids, right? But um, there is something he said about the great melting pot that is America, and we can't discount kind of the, the background noise that that plays in terms of preventing folks. Um, but if you kind of pull back the curtain of folks that travel to Syria, Iraq, uh, or, or didn't travel to Syria, Iraq, or didn't get involved, um, a couple of reasons. Um, one is, you know, Right, you and I are more likely to join a terrorist organization if you join with me, right? Uh, if you have a person in your life who agrees with you on that extreme belief, it doesn't seem extreme at that point. And you can kind of hold hands and take the jump over the cliff together. Um, and so in the U.S. context, you're not talking about groups of seven, eight, nine, tens. You're really talking about ones and twos. I say in, in the UK, when you look at like a group like Sharia for UK, which is hand out leaflets in Birmingham about, about how great ISIS is, you're talking about a clip of dozens of folks, right? And so you're more likely to get more people if you've got this in-person network uh, of, of connections. And actually the reason why we see such a relatively high number in Minneapolis, because um, they were the brothers, sisters, and roommates of folks who joined Al-Shabaab a few years prior to that. Uh, and so in-person networks mattered a great deal. In the US context, we didn't have a whole lot, right? We didn't necessarily, with some notable exceptions, didn't have a kind of radical mosque or community centers kind of actively recruiting folks. If you were talking about how great ISIS were, you were getting kicked out and sent to the next town uh, and trying to build up your own book study by yourself. Um, the other thing is, um, we, we also can't discount geographic location. Right, it's a little bit harder to get over, um, but also couple that with a. Um, Aggressive without a a judgment on it, an aggressive approach for law enforcement as it relates to no-fly lists and um, select D lists. So harder to travel. In fact, a lot of these folks, we got towards the later cases, we had folks like trying to get on our freighter uh, uh, boat to to travel to Turkey because they just couldn't get on an airplane. Um, And then finally, I think probably the most um, important of all of it is we've got this thing called the material sports terrorism clause um, in our statute. And it's kind of unique for most Western countries and material support can be like, I'm driving the airport um, and I'm going to send somebody a bunch of guns and money. Okay, that's material support to ISIS. That's an arrest, right? But material can also be yourself, personnel, right? So if I drive to O'Hare Airport, material is me and I can be arrested for material support to terrorism. And it's a relatively easier case to build than, say, our, our European counterparts may have um, to build a case. Now, my FBI colleagues would say, like, I'm working late nights. Like, it's pretty hard to shame us. But, um, but it, there is something to be said about that. It also means that, uh, rightly or wrongly, the FBI interjects themselves into the process earlier on in the radicalization and mobilization process than most Western countries, right? Um, so we're using, we're, we rely heavily on the use of informants or undercover agents uh, in about 60% of the cases. And so it doesn't allow for those clusters to build up you're not going to see say like for the domestic terrorism thing you'd see like two dozen guys planning to attack the michigan governor right if you had two dozen guys you're planning to attack somebody in the name of isis you know 22 of them would be fbi agents right and so we've, we've gotten pretty good at surveillance and and takedown when it comes to international terrorism and that allows for those networks not to build and as such you can't have those in-person networks if you have less numbers along with a very academic way of saying it's not just the American dream, stupid.
1: This is why I didn't name the head of state by name here. Um, One of the data points from your program on extremism at GW that informed uh, a lot of the research behind this book, one of the data points that I watched most closely when I was in the Deputy Attorney General's Office of Justice was the length of sentence and the average length of sentence. And in some cases, we weren't even bringing material support claims because we didn't want to dilute the length of sentence uh, that judges were sentencing right. on material support by bringing um, a lower level claim. So you might bring a gun charge or some other charge. And yet these are still. Uh, individuals engaged in terrorist-related activities. So how might that relatively low sentence length that we're seeing impact risk of recidivism, risk of people committing future attacks once they're released from prison?
2: Yeah, so if you look at the, the data set of uh, something north of 300 folks have been charged with ISIS-related activities in the last five years. Um, The average prison sentence is 11.2 years, but it's an average, right? Some people get life, some people get 20 years, and then some people get probation. And the probation folks tend to be kind of the false statements, the FBI, the gun charges, or they flip state's evidence and had something um, to trade. Um, Now, the question of of recidivism um, has been something that's been kind of bullied about and and talked about in government and also in academia of like, we should be worried about these guys. In fact, we've rested something north of eight 100 people for terrorism charges in the last 20 years. We're coming up with the anniversary of 9 11. The average prison sentence is 11.2 years. You do the math, a lot of these guys are getting out. Um, But here's the asterisk in many ways, it's been the dog that hasn't bit, right? And if you look at crime statistics and terrorism as a form of crime, crime statistics, there's a higher level of recidivism for other forms of crime than there is terrorism, right? Uh, What usually happens is um, someone stays kind of in their belief system when they go into jail. all hanging out in Supermax or Terre Haute with all guys who like ISIS. But if a lot of these folks I interview, when they get out, they're kind of done, right? Um, with some notable exceptions, right? John Georgialis from Texas gets arrested for um, defacing Apex website on behalf of Hamas and then joins um, ISIS and becomes a, a pretty high level guy. Um, but for many, most parts, they're they're the outliers. Um, the other thing to look at when you look at, at comparisons is in Europe, um, it tends to be, or at least there's a good number of folks who are charged with ISIS related activities who have a criminal record, right? Petty larceny, things like that. In the US, when you dive through the numbers, uh, the first crime tends to be terrorism, right? Uh, which is kind of unique in, in its in its way. Um, and so, sure, we should be worried about prison radicalization, and sure, we should be worried about recidivism. Um, but it probably, if I'm racking and stacking, it's, it's probably lower on the totem pole than, than that.
0: One last thing
2: to note, which I think would raise concerns is, you know, as we're interviewing FBI folks around the country, um, a lot of them would say, I put this guy away for five years, he's getting out and like, shame is I'm terrified of him, like he's, he's bad news, right. Um, but I also know I can't open an investigation for him. So even though you're convicted for terrorism, the the predicate once you get out of jail does not kind of remain with you for the rest of your life, right? And so you're not running surveillance for 24 hours, seven days a week on some guy who walks out of jail for material support terrorism because you haven't reached a threshold for DOJ's kind of um, domestic investigations oversight guide to be able to do that. And so what's going to come to head is if someone commits an attack, right? If someone comes out of jail, commits an attack, the first thing Congress is going to say, and I think, you know, Senator McCain and my old boss Lieberman would sue the same thing. It's like, come on, common sense, this guy was a terrorist, he came out, he committed a terrorist act, why weren't you watching them? And if you pull back the nuance, it's like, well, the system of of checks and balances we have on privacy, civil liberties doesn't allow for us to do so. And so barring you deciding you want to change the goalpost on that, this is kind of the the status that we're going to have to deal with. Well,
1: one thing we are seeing with sentences now is a much longer uh, probation period post-sentence. Uh, often
2: yeah. years, right? Yeah, it's, it, it, you know, probation is is a mess, right? Uh, when you look at, at sentencing around the country, so um, the the U.S. Sentencing Commission will recommend twenty years for material sports terrorism, right? Kind of a standard, like, but there's not a lot of recommendations on probation. So you'll see like an individual get two years of probation. Um, you'll see an individual get ten years of probation, and then I've seen quite a number who get lifetime supervision, right? And, and when you read the transcripts to talk to the judges they'll say well I, we don't have a de-radicalization program in prison i don't have any programs for him for safety nets when he gets out and so i don't want to take a chance right and there are second and third order effects to that um, one is some level of uniformity you know parity and fairness is probably good for our criminal justice system but but the other thing um is there is you know i talked to a guy who um uh wanted to st- to spend some time in ISIS, wanted to get wanted to join ISIS, didn't work out and he got arrested for ISIS related activities. He got out and his probation was um, you know, supervised release, all of those things, but he also couldn't use his phone. He couldn't download new apps for his life. So um, here's a guy who couldn't ride the bus during COVID because you needed to have a bus pass on your phone. And then, like, kind of ridiculous stuff. Like, he wanted to go date. He couldn't, he got in trouble, actually. He got tripped up by the judge because he downloaded the Tinder app to go on a date. And that caused a a confluence of different and awkward detention hearings about whether he should go back to jail for for that effect. So, we haven't figured out the kind of uniform approach to it.
1: So, now we've talked about why people join, what they do when they join, um, and sentencing them released, but a lot of the work you and I did together is how do we prevent people from joining these movements to begin with? Um, and I am confident that the United States attorneys I used to work with would be delighted to hear your conclusion that prevention programs work best when built from the bottom up by committed partners. So but your book also had some critiques of the history of kind of countering violent extremism programs in this country. Um, we've seen a pivot recently. Yeah. The DHS Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships, uh, and frankly, the McCain Institute, the programs that we run in the Preventing Targeted Violence Team, we've all sought to address many of the weaknesses you identified in your book and really implement a public health approach to prevention that focuses on risk factors and protective factors for violence rather than indicators that can Mm -hmm. be a lot of false positives, Um, and focuses on primary and secondary prevention, those elements of individual uh, support and intervention.
2: Yeah.
1: Where are you finding promise in these updated approaches?
2: Um, so we talk a, a little bit about, and I should have mentioned, um, they're going to kill me if I didn't. You know, I didn't write this book in a vacuum. It was, it was me and my colleague, Alex Hitchens, and, and Bennett Clifford, um, who did yeoman's work on all of this and are much better writers and researchers than me. So full we'll stop on that, and I hope they watched all the way to this point. So I said that. If not, I will cut this clip and send it to them. Um, but we, uh, collectively, the three of us, um, looked at a case study out of New York in the Eastern District of New York. And there was a, a young upstart, not so young anymore, Assistant U.S. Attorney, um, who at the height of ISIS, 2014, 15 timeframe, um, he's sitting, so in New York, you do like a weekly hangout. So the, the Assistant U.S. Attorneys and the FBI and the NYPD all hang out in the same room and they brief the cases they got going on. So like Joe Smith is doing this and, and, and John Smith is getting guns and Jane Smith is sending money. And you go through the cases and the assistant U.S. attorney can kind of understand what's going on and tell you when you kind going to have to do takedowns or when you got enough to bring charges and that type of thing. So our, our assistant U.S. attorney there was doing this, and, and by the third or fourth week, he realized he was completely overwhelmed. Right? He did not have enough prosecutors to prosecute all these cases. right? And to be fair, there's a lot of minors, right? kids under the age of 18, and as a your yeah. father of, of a few, he didn't want to do that either. Um, and so he said, he turned to a bunch of colleagues and said, we gotta figure out a different way, right? And so they tried, and I think, you know, still in the growing pains, but they basically tried a a bit of a carrot and stick approach. Um, So you have an individual you're worried about, you can prosecute them up um, to the high hills and and give them, you know, 20 years to, to life, or you can offer them a different way, right? Try this different approach, meet with a mental health professional, a social worker, a mentor, a religious leader, whatever you need that makes you not you, or at least your extreme beliefs, um, let's try that. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, I'll tell the judge you tried, Right. right? Um, and and they also had kind of non-coercive um, means too, right? Just general cases of, of using formers on that. And that was a reflection of, again, of, of frustration. Um, and I think sometimes the best ideas come out of frustration, right? When you kind of throw up your hands and say like, the current approach doesn't work. Let's throw it all on the wall and see what sticks and, and things like that. And my concern with, with countervailing extremism, kind of the history of countervailing extremism is nobody had the political will to let mistakes happen in a regular clip, right? Um, you're trying, you're, I mean, you're looking for a 20% success rate, 30% on a good day, right? And so, but you gotta be willing to have that 80 or 90 or 70% failure rate. And I'm not sure either the, the political class or even congressional th- Authorizers, appropriators were willing to let CD have that kind of um, stumbles uh, on that. The other thing they didn't were weren't willing to have was uh, money and personnel, right? I mean, were they? I remember kind of sitting probably with you at you know Capitol Hill asking, although we couldn't really ask, we weren't allowed to, but like winking and nodding that we needed money, right? Uh, right, very nicely mentioning that it's me and three of my friends at the NCPC that are taking on the entire breadth of the National Counterterrorism Center's approach to kind of extremism, and it was you also working forensic science at the same time, right? So that's not a, a that is not a national strategy. There was a national strategy, but not a national effort uh, behind it. And so um, that's always been the problem with kind extremism is, is it's a flash in the pan for policymakers and the public and the media, and then it isn't. And when it isn't, everyone kind of forgets about it. And when it isn't, there's not a built-in advocacy. On the right, they'll say you're kind of you're you're hugging a terrorist, you're being too soft on terrorism. Like, why are you doing special programs for people who want to kill us? And on the left, they'll say, listen, this is government overreach, you're policing thought, you're touching on establishment clause and first amendment issues, like get the hell out of here, government. Right. And in the middle, you got like a few of us are like, listen, I don't want to talk to another 16-year-old kid about how he's gonna go to jail for 20 more years. So, like you got to give me some other options um and that's a very nuanced and hard conversation to try to convince and get on a bumper sticker and, and get through 280 characters of a tweet um and so there is not kind of folks that are saying yeah we're all in we're going to take on both the left and the right or the both extremes on this thing and we're going to really push this through oh and by the way you you told me you're going to fail 70 of the time i'm 100 I'm in. right no one's going to take that bet if you're trying to get elected every two years in congress and so um this is a very long-winded thing to say. I'm gonna circle back for a second. You're absolutely right. Government should, the federal government should act as kind of the quality control, check it. Let me ask you some questions like, has this worked in Minneapolis or Charleston or things like that? And if it has, how they do it? Can you, talk, can you connect me with a guy? And, and the locals should have to, to push it. Because if the locals push it, they own it. And they're kind of all into it. And there's a reason why that assistant U.S. attorney in New York kept pushing cases there because he was a true believer, and you need true believers in counter-extremism to actually get anything done. And barring any true believers, it's not going to happen. Right. Finally, I'll mention another true believer, like uh, uh, the U.S. attorney, former U.S. attorney in Minneapolis, Andy Luger. When the White House announced a, a counter-extremism strategy and they picked three pilot cities—Minneapolis, uh, Boston, and L.A. We had a White House summit, we had fancy balloons, everyone's very excited, right? Um, and then Andy raised his hand at some point and said, well, you have a national strategy, are you gonna have any money behind it? And the Obama administration, even the Trump administration kind of hemmed and hawed and said like, no, no, we haven't gotten that far. We haven't asked for Congress for anything. And Andy said to hell with that, he rolled up his sleeves and talked to a bunch of foundations and found the money within Minneapolis to try to do kind of a, uh, at least a, a good pilot program on that, but that's because the locals bought in, right? Because they said, "To the hell with the federal government on this. We're going to figure out a way um, to do that." I think they're they're channeling their inner um, John McCain on these type of things, which is like, "It's I want to do it. I know it's right, and I'll figure out how to uh, the the consequences behind it."
1: And it was frequently the youth, as you mentioned. That's when I would get the calls from United States Attorneys saying. I can't charge this 15-year-old who's on the spectrum. Give yep. me an alternative.
2: Yep. Um, and I and got you, those calls multiple times a week. But nobody wants to do that, right? I mean, listen, if you're an FBI agent, you, you don't want to read a diary of a 13-year-old kid till they turn 18. Um, like, you don't want to hit a FISA up on them for five years and have to re-up it every 90 days. One, that's a waste of resources. And two, that's a questionable use of government uh, authority uh, when there's there should be other ways. Now, the the issue becomes, how do we incentivize that, right? And so how do we incentivize that, not only within DOJ, but also the Bureau and other places to say, you know, you don't make your chops just on arresting the Najibulazazis of the world who've got pipe bombs in New York. You also get your chops by closing a case by non-law enforcement means for a 13-year-old kid from Florida who's talking about how great Abdel al Fazl is, right? And if we can figure out a way to incentivize that process, I think we may be better off
1: So I'm gonna shift towards some future questions here and I will also cue the audience um, in about 10 minutes. We're gonna open it up for audience questions and welcome uh, your questions through the chat or the Q and A function. Um, What terrorist group do you think will be the next big threat for international terrorism here in the United States? And two-part question, do you think the Taliban uh, could be a significant threat to watch uh, as the US withdraws from
2: Afghanistan? I mean, the the concern with with Afghanistan is a vacuum, right, and and, um, things like um, ISIS builds up in a vacuum. Um, if you look at the domestic plotting in the U.S., we have like 38 plots that happened in the U.S. at a two-year time frame, and about 40% of them were connected to or had a touch point with folks, six guys, men and women in Raqqa, who are systematically reached out to Americans to commit attacks, right? And they were able to do that because nobody's dropping bombs or pulling in troops or doing any counter-messaging or counter-operations um, op- in Raqqa at the time, and so they can move with impunity, and freedom to, to spend 12 hours trying to encourage a guy from New York to stab a bunch of people in, in a nightclub on New Year's Eve like they did for a gentleman there, right? And so vacuums matter and safe spaces for, or safe havens, for lack of a better word, um, matter too. And so from that way, I would be concerned. I mean, listen, we're in an interesting time right now for foreign terrorist organizations. You know, ISIS is is increasingly trying to kind of um, co-opt is not the right word, but work together with local jihadist or local grievances to try to 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 work that through, whether it be kind of sub-Saharan Africa and places like that. Um but I also think we can't discount what old what is old is now going to be new again, which is Al Qaeda. In fact, you know, just yesterday they put out another video called American Burns where they basically just mocked us for January 6th. Um, but those guys have kind of kept their head down for a while and ISIS goes to the flash and they had the coalition against them and everyone focused on ISIS. And, I, and Al-Qaeda is kind of the old school guys, right? They're going to plan for two years. They're going to have the 40-page treatise about why they're right. They're not doing the tweets. And so those are the folks that you should be more concerned about kind of sophisticated um, type of attacks. The other thing to look at would be um, not necessarily kind of the the threat from outward in, but inward um, out. So everyone missed, if, if you're still an ISIS supporter now, you missed your window to travel. And so sometimes we see folks kind of going to Mali or Somalia or like Pakistan on the way to Afghanistan, and just it's kind of a mess. There's not that one bug light that was Syria and Iraq. And so a lot of these folks are turning their focus inward on domestic plotting, and they have a sense of, I missed my window, and I've got to either avenge what's happening in ISIS or bring it back, and the only way to do it is through violence. And so that would be the, probably the most concerning thing. And finally, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention kind of Hezbollah is traditionally kind of Use the US as um, a logistics um, system, right? So selling cigarettes, money, cars, guns, um, not necessarily for domestic plotting. Um, but if there was a determination to turn that network on towards violence in the US, I think um I think we'd have our hands full very quickly. Right, that was really deep and dark. Um we don't worry, we still have domestic terrorism we got to worry about too. So we got plenty of stuff going on.
1: That's where I'm going
2: next. Yes, let's do that.
1: focus of this book was homegrown Homegrown violent extremism is kind of a term of art for individuals inspired by foreign terrorist organizations, but what lessons can we draw from the U.S. government's approach to ISIS in addressing the increasing threats we're seeing white supremacists and anti-government
2: violence? Yeah. So I, I've been around the block long enough that um, things repeat a little bit. So this reminds me a lot of um, domestic terrorism moment right now reminds me a lot of where Al-Qaeda was in 2002, 2003, 2004 timeframe in the U.S. And not necessarily Al-Qaeda itself, but its adherents. So I think it's like a group like Revolution Muslim, which had a dozen members handing out leaflets in Times Square about how great the caliphate was. Right? They're They're recruiting overtly they're doing all of those things. And you can get like a large scale crew, like the, the folks that were shooting paintballs in Virginia, you can see large numbers come there. And then the FBI did their thing, right? They, they arrested a dozen of them for Revolution Muslim, they took down large scale networks, and you don't see that kind of large number of folks, relative terms, large number of folks that are drawn to it. In the domestic terrorism context, you've got two things happening, which is you still got the inspired folks, and what we have for ISIS, right? The inspired folks, they, they hear the message, they wanna commit violence, but you still also have these organizations. We saw those organizations play out on January 6th, whether it be the Oath Keepers with their stack formation going up the Capitol, or the Proud Boys with their three dozen folks who've been arrested so far, or the Three Percenters, or even QAnon now, right? Which I don't think we can argue is an organization, but it's still damn sure an ideology or a movement, right? Um, those organizations, are probably the most concerning in terms of um, techniques, tactics, sophistication, and the ability to commit kind of larger scale uh, attacks. I think the the FBI, Department of Justice. If you look at AG Garland or, um, or or FBI or Director Ray's kind of stuff, they're going to push the agents at it. They're going to push more prosecutors at it, and they're probably going to sweep up and take care of a lot of these kind of large scale organizations. And we're going to be left with is these smaller individuals one or two individual type of things which means less likely means less lethal but it also means harder to detect right It's easy when you got 12 guys in a group because at least one of them can to spout their mouth off right and you can kind of trip up and have a, a bystander effect it's a little bit harder for ones and twos but the last thing i'd look at in terms of uh, of, of approach is um, the prevention question right? And so uh, when I was in government, prevention was largely community engagement, right? Running a round table of Muslim American community members in a variety of different cities about how to prevent terrorism and how to encourage folks to um, work with government or not work with government to try to implement programs to do so. Um, That apparatus was set up. It it ran pretty good in terms of, it was a well-ordered machine of people traveling, whether it's effective or not, we can debate that, but it was well-ordered machine. That same kind of apparatus is not how you kind of approach domestic terrorism, or at least you're, it's not how you're going to approach it in a political landscape as, as this, right? No one's going to run a round table besides one person, no one's going to run a round table of cyber citizens uh, in Michigan, right? Um, very few are going to run a round table of, of white supremacists or traditional workers' party when when Hamlet gets his crew back together, you know, very few people are going to run that type of crew. So you're, you're really talking away from what has traditionally been the last 15-year approach for counter-eviling extremism of community engagement and more towards kind of one-on-one intervention type of approaches. Um, I, was, I was pleased by the domestic terrorism um, strategy, which kind of recognized that ever so slightly. Um, but I think that you're, it's going to take a while to move the ship a little bit. Finally, you know, because we're talking, let me just mention one last thing, which is, I don't see the, the I don't see the appetite, um, barring a, a large scale attack, um, hopefully not a large scale attack. Um, I don't see the appetite for a domestic terrorism statute. Um, I think both on the right and the left on Capitol Hill, and so you're going to see kind of this hodgepodge approach uh, of this. So think of like two guys in Minneapolis got arrested um, as Boogaloo boys. They got arrested for material sports of terrorism. For Hamas. And the only reason they got them on that is because the FBI used an undercover who said he was Hamas. It's a very creative way to get to a material support of terrorism clause. But if you don't have that kind of designated groups, you're going to get gun charges, you're going to get drug charges, largely drug charges. And that kind of hodgepodge approach means state and locals are going to usually arrest, the federals are sometimes going to arrest. And nobody's going to tell Bureau of Prisons or probation services that they're looking at a white supremacist who's been part of the Aryan Brotherhood for the last 20 years, and they should do, when they do their stops, they should look for, you know, 14 words when they do their check on the House, right? Um, and so, because it's so, so such a kind of mesh of a, of a look on domestic terrorism, it's going to be a bit of a concern.
1: Well, and we at the McGinn Institute partnered with the Center for American Progress to build policy blueprint to end white supremacist violence. We did uh, stakeholder outreach with over 150 different stakeholders, and one of the only points of consensus was not pursuing a domestic terrorism statute. That was pretty much the only way to get a lot of those stakeholders to the table. So yeah. um, I, I think you're right that there's not not bipartisan support for that at this time.
2: I mean, some, sometimes I argue for it um, just short a conversation. because. It actually is a good learning experience of where people stand on how to approach domestic terrorism in general, right? And so if I kind of talk about how the fact that we don't have the statute and as such, is all over the map, probations all over the map, you can't do any numbers, you can't collect against it, it makes people think, okay, well, if we're not going to have domestic terrorism statute, how do we get to those three things in a different way? Oh, I hadn't thought about kind of that approach and, and then sometimes it's was just trolling, but right but, the, but usually it's um, to start a conversation.
1: There's also a rule of law implication that if you yep. use a gun to attack people in a house of worship in the name of ISIS, that's material support and a potential sentence of 20 years. And if you use that same gun to attack the same uh, worshipers in a house of worship in the name of pick your white supremacist movement, it's not terrorism, uh, at least not charged as such. And so, um, you can have that rule of law conversation as well, but I agree we're not not seeing that broader community support as well as bipartisan support for a domestic terrorism statute. One of the things we saw on January 6th was the kind of disproportionate representation of veterans um, and even in some instances, active duty personnel. Um, are there parallels between the radicalization of former National Guardsman, uh, Muhammad Baylor Jalla and the current concern of white nationalism, uh, and white supremacist violence with veterans now?
2: Yeah. Um, so just by way of background, Jala was a guy, was a guardsman from Virginia, um, who we wrote about pretty extensively in the book. Um, we had access and permission for once um, to talk to an FBI agent who worked the case. And um, and what it, what it, the takeaway from that was an individual who was kind of directed by um, a guy named Al Sudani um, to commit an attack in the U.S., uh, luckily for um, everyone involved, he Sudani connected him with a, a trusted advisor. That trusted advisor was an FBI undercover agent. So the case kind of unraveled from there. But the reason why Sudani was so excited about Jala is because he had training, Right. And I think that's also how we look at domestic terrorism. If you look at January 6th, um, the individuals who were drawn to, who had a military background or active duty tended to be drawn to groups like Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and took an outsized role in those organizations um, because they're actively recruited in it in many ways, right? There's a command and control structure. There's a there's a recognition that, that they have useful skill sets and things like that. They can take commands from Stuart Rhodes, that type of thing. And so usually kind of a push and pull. These extremist groups trying to recruit military folks and military folks, um, if they do get recruited, tend to go towards more of an organizational um, type of approach on it. And again, the concern is always going to be their skill set, right? We'll see how DOD kind of shakes out on this. There's a lot of movement early on after January 6th, kind of a stand down, a, a kicking the tires of where we are on extremism in the ranks and things like that. And they're pretty significant. Um, talking to a lot of folks, a pretty significant pushback by the ranks of saying, you know, you're unfairly targeting us and you think we're kind of a uh, a would-be um, extremist, even though, you know, we, and we're serving our country, right? It um, almost reminds me a lot of of um, engagement as it relates to kind of extremism for Muslim American communities too, right? Why are you talking to us? And the answer is, if, um, you know, Baghdadi was trying to recruit um, jazz students, I in the next plane to New Orleans, right? You go where the message is trying to get sent, uh, and so it just kind of makes sense uh, to do so. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced that DoD either has the the ability, the stamina, or the political will to kind of do what needs to get done in order to to stamp this out a little bit. And it's less so, I mean, active duty is concerning, but it's more so on the back end, right? When folks get out of um, their service, um, what support systems do we have in place? What tripwires do we have in place? You know, is is the VA any use on these type of things or are they not? Um, traditionally, one would say no. And so it just, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out, but I'm not particularly hopeful on it.
1: I'm a little more hopeful than you. I've had some encouraging conversations with both DOD and VA and Veterans Affairs Committee on the Hills. So we're, we're starting to see additional movement, but yeah. there, there's always a learning
2: curve. Yeah, I mean, the learning curve is important too, right? Because if you look at like a, a Fort attack, um, Nadal Hassan um, kills 13, injures 32 others uh, in Fort Hood in November 2009. Um, there was a gap, which is the FBI did not alert um, the proper authorities at DOD that they had an active investigations under one of their folks. And after that, if there was a an review, and actually, Senator McCain was one of the people that helped us out on the Fort Hood investigation for, the, for Senate Helmland. Um, After we did the review, the FBI now, as a way of course, alerts DOD when they have an active investigation for international terrorism. They don't necessarily do that, or at least don't do it systematically for domestic terrorism, right? So they just kind of cut it out as a a thing. And so I think, and in fact, I'm sure that they're going to go back to that place where they actually do alert DOD on all forms of of active investigation for terrorism, but it's going to take them a while to get there. And I think that's a lesson too. We shouldn't assume that the government is like malice in the way they do things, it just takes a while to catch up and realize the gaps. And sometimes it takes kind of horrific events like January 6th to shake the system in such a way that people sit up and take notice.
1: So I'm turning now to our audience questions. Our first question is from Ian Gillespie, and that's are there any de-radicalization programs in the U.S. prison system when they receive an average of eleven years? And I know you and I have a little bit of a disagreement on this, but I'm going to let you go first, Shamus.
2: So let me be the cynical guy who says absolutely not, and you can be the, the rosy person that tells me I'm absolutely wrong. But this is might be my Irish Catholicness in, in it, which I you know see that glass half empty at all times, right? So um, the short answer is I don't believe so in any kind of real meaningful way. With the asterisk of there are folks that are desperately trying to do so and have been trying for the last 10 years and have been pushing at a door, right? And the door says, why do I give extra services to an individual who wants to blow up a mall of America and not to a one a first-time drug offender who desperately needs those services? Why does the guy who wants to kill me get better access to services and de-radicalization than a, than a low-level offender, right? Uh, and the answer is, is a variety of different ways, which kind of societal approaches, things like that. Here's the thing. We do have some programs in prison, which one would argue is not de-radicalization, but does keep things in check, um, or at least uh, putting aside the pro- privacy and civil liberties concerns of this, which is um, and a pretty active monitoring of individuals who've been charged with, with international terrorism, whether that be reading letters, phone calls, um, analysis of that, um, a understanding that we shouldn't put certain people in the same cell block as the other people and and and, and areas of, of that nature. Um, but the U.S. has largely taken our approach of um, herding everyone together in one place and so that they can't, for lack of a better word, infect the general population of extremism. So Terre Haute, Supermax, and that allows for you to uh, throw your resources against insurance collection and surveillance, but it also allows you to, to infect and make sure that somebody's not kind of preaching about how good ISIS is in a random federal prison in Alabama. Um, and so uh, this is why I'm cynical on it. There was a case in Ohio of a guy named um, Abdi Sheikh Mohammed. And Abdi Sheikh Mohammed was a guy who was in Al-Nusra. For a little bit, he came back here. He was going to hang out with four of his friends and committed a terrorist attack in Texas at the behest of Al-Nusra. Um, and the FBI and, and DOJ, during the sentencing, uh, Abdi Sheikh Mohammed said, listen, I, I changed my mind. I want to become a former. I want to talk about this. Um, and I think I'm happy to go through any de-radicalization program you want us to do. Um, I am all in if it helps me shave off some time in jail. Um, and DOJ was forced, because um, the judge forced him to say on the record, there is no formalized de-radicalization program in jail. Right. Which tells me that there is probably de-radicalization programs in jail, but happening at the local level and not really kind of at a, at a federal level at a real clip. Now, Brent, tell me why I'm wrong, because I know I'm wrong. I trust you on this.
1: So, no, you are right that there's no de-radicalization program, uh, as described, what the Bureau of Prisons would tell you uh, is... They have done extensive research on all of the programs overseas that are actually evidence informed, um, looking at what's actually working. And a lot of what's working is job skills training, life skills counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, cognitive beha- or life skills counseling in the context of um, kind of as informed by religious practice as well. Uh, and all of those programs are available in US prisons. They're just not specifically tailored to mm-hmm. radicalization to violence or disengagement um, from terrorist systems. So that that's the nuance. You're right, no de-radicalization program. However, um there are uh there are certain services out there that have been evidence-based uh internationally.
2: So, so this reminds me a little bit about when we were doing invest, um, research for the book. Um, so in Minneapolis, like I said, things come out of frustration, right? Um, and whether it be the assisting attorney in New York is running a de-radicalization program or disengagement program. Or in Minneapolis, there was a judge, Judge Davis, who had seen every Al-Shabaab case that came through and two dozen of them was seeing a dozen ISIS cases. And he was looking at it, he's like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna put these guys away for 40 years. Like, what do I do? What programs do I have available? And Dan, if he didn't get on a plane to go to Germany and kick the tires on a few programs, right? Right. Because this is a guy who desperately wanted to figure out a different way. And to be fair, he had seen enough cases he didn't scare easily, right? And there's something to be said about seeing enough cases. It's the reason why New York, no one's gonna call New York soft on terrorists. And so they can try disengagement, de-radicalization because they don't scare so easily on this. It's not, kind of an outlier. And there's something to be said about the, the regularity of these cases coming through allows you to try to be creative on things.
1: So we've got two more questions in the queue here. Has your research given you any insight into funding schemes that are supplying both foreign terrorist organizations and domestic organizations with money and resources? Uh, And then kind of further into that question, are they connected with any large black market groups? Um, So I'll let you tackle
2: that one. Let's take them one by one. For the for the ISIS cases, um, you're not talking about large scales of money. Uh, and so what usually happened is money left U.S. to ISIS. So individuals would send money to like a gentleman like Al-Sudani who was a member of um, the Legion which was recruiting Americans. And they'd send like $250 or $500 through largely through with PayPal, uh, I'm sorry, um, Western Union, right? Their only instance I could think of Actually, I know the only instance that publicly available of ISIS sending money to the US would be a guy named Mohammed el Shanawi from um, Maryland who got $8,700 from ISIS with a plan to behead um, uh, a woman named Pam Geller. Um, they they directed her to do so. Um, but very seldom did ISIS send money in. And mostly folks basically um, either maxed out their credit cards or a good number of them took out student loan. Um, did a little student loan fraud, and then would buy tickets from there. Every once in a while, you have an outlier case, like there's a case out of New York of a woman who basically maxed out her credit cards, took out a lot of credit, and sent hundreds of thousands of dollars to ISIS, Um, but but really not um, anything of real um, substance. Um, For the domestic terrorism or the domestic extremism cases, um, you know, Bitcoin is clearly something that they, they rely on heavily because it plays into a larger narrative about conspiracy and, and, and government and currency and things like that. Um, but it's largely kind of, self-funded is not the right, crowdfunded is probably the best way, right? Um, set up kind of accounts to do so uh, and, and do it. Um, but again, you're not really talking about expensive things. And that's I think one of the issues that um, Treasury Department's gonna have or has had both for ISIS and domestic terrorism. When you talk about homegrown terrorism, nothing's gonna hit against that threshold of $10,000 for the most part, right? And so you're gonna have to be creative on what you're looking for. And the lower you look for it, the more concerns you may have for privacy and similarities for for Americans in general. And so it's gonna be an issue to to do so.
1: So Greg Erie asks, how do you view social media companies responsibility and efforts for keeping extremist messaging off their respective platforms?
2: Yeah, I think I view social media companies similar to way I view utility, um, which you know, should be a public good of some sort. But uh, let's not go down that rabbit hole too much. I think they have a responsibility to police their site. Uh, and in fact, you saw Facebook, well, particularly Twitter, at the height of ISIS was a platform of choice. Everyone who was ISIS was on Twitter. Once Twitter realized that there was a bunch of bad stories in the Washington Post and New York Times, once Congress started throwing letters at them, um, they started hiring up on it, right? And so they got analysts, they got um, intelligence folks, and they started policing their site at a regular clip. And that is true of most of the big four, right? Microsoft, Facebook, uh, Google, and Twitter um, have more analysts and agents than the FBI does, you know, full stop, right? Uh, And so not only just content moderation, but just kind of strategic looking and things like that. I think you know, the Bureau would be very jealous um, to have that kind of crew of folks uh, looking at, at their content on a, on a regular basis. Um, I think the social media companies got very good at doing content moderation for ISIS. I think the big ones have not gotten really good at domestic extremism. Uh, to be fair, it's a harder data set to look at. It's easy to look at an ISIS video with the ISIS flag in the corner or a beheading video and say, that's ISIS, that's terrorism, take it down. And you can build out algorithms to do so. It is harder when you look at something like QAnon, which has like a hashtag, save our children. And from all outward appearances, it looks like it's a perfectly normal, let's stop human trafficking of children. When in actuality, they're talking about elites drinking the blood of children and stopping convoys of military folks in Texas, right? And so that takes a level of training and nuance in the system of which they don't have yet uh, to do so. I am hopeful that social media companies will step up the plate on domestic extremism. In fact, I think they will. As these guys move on to encrypted or, or more niche platforms which don't have the resources to leave their site and also have a propensity towards free expression, um, that may become uh, an issue. One last thing is, um, you know, social media companies get a lot of hits and sometimes for me. Um, but there also is something to be said about um, the failure of government, which is in theory, counterterrorism, not in theory actually, in actuality, counterterrorism should be an inherently governmental function. And we've largely ceded that function to private companies to do that themselves, right? And that may be the way we wanna do that. And that may be the way the system of government is set up, um, but it damn sure isn't right, right? And so if we've ceded the responsibility to private companies, then I think it's incumbent on us and government um, to figure out a system um, that that has a little bit more finger on the scale um, in a way that's meaningful.
1: So we have uh, one more question and then a shout out from Angie Latour, Uh, glad we incorporated the Minneapolis shout out earlier. Uh, So Barzan Baran asks, um, let's see, there are different Muslim communities in the USA and they are divided into different groups, um, such as Sufis, Salafis and Islamic groups which one is the most peaceful in American society is his question.
2: Yeah, so I, I touched enough about um, terrorism. I try to avoid religion wherever possible, but let's talk a little bit about um, this. Let me avoid your question, but answer it in a different way, which is if you look at um, the American ISIS recruits in the book, um, it is a spectrum. And on some side of the spectrum, you have people that are, you know, born and raised in the faith, steeped in the faith, you know. Uh, Can quote the Quran back and forth um, blindfolded, know everything about the religion, and then you have folks like Shannon Conley from Denver who basically converts to ISIS and not Islam, and everything in between. And so it's not to say that you know you have a bunch of folks who don't understand Islam, and it's not to say that you have a bunch of folks who absolutely understand Islam. It's to say that everyone is a different level of understanding um, throughout it. Now the question of kind of engagement on these issues um, will clearly play a role, right? Um, and so how you approach kind of certain um, sects or organizations on Islam, on these things on community engagement is going to be different, right? Um, does Brett do the engagement or do I do the engagement depending on, on the mosque I'm at, right? Uh, and and how, and then the larger question, which um, again, I don't want to touch the third rail, but it's one thing to talk about violent extremism. It's another talk, thing to talk about, talk about extremism, right? And how important is that mood music in the background of it? That's not gonna say something that that they need to commit violence to join ISIS, but sure it says it's okay to denigrate um, LGBTQ communities or to do X, Y, and Z. And does that mood music help get someone to a point where the next guy, the ideologue comes in and says, it's just one more step. Let's just do one more step guy, right? In the domestic terrorism context, domestic extremism context, that's it. So that concept is very richly debated in academia, right? Does words connect with violence? Words and actions, does that matter? On the domestic extremism thing, that's largely a settled issue, right? No one's going to say it's a good idea for the KKK to have rallies of thousands of people because undoubtedly someone's going to commit an attack or violence because of those types of rallies. It's kind of an agreed upon point. When it comes to groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that's a very controversial conversation to have, and one I'm not sure we're willing to have uh, in this um, state of affairs in the country.
1: In fact, some people have said it's okay for KKK to have those rallies, uh, including the Supreme Court.
2: Yes. Um,
1: As defended by ACLU at the time. So,
2: uh, They wouldn't take it up now.
1: (laughs) That goes to freedom of speech in this country. And the fact that your ideas are protected—it's the violence uh, on behalf of those ideas. It's I
2: mean, it's—it's it's really the question of—I um, mean, this is another question about de-radicalization versus disengagement, right? The U.S. government's role should probably be on disengagement, right? Disengaging from violence. It should not necessarily be on de-radicalization, um, de-radicalizing from extremist beliefs and thoughts, right? Um, you know, for the book, we interviewed a gentleman who was. Um, actually I didn't put it in the book, but I interviewed him anyway. So a guy who was in Al-Qaeda, and he came back, and, you know, I asked him what his biggest regret was, and he said getting caught, right? Now, that is not a guy who's de-radicalized. That's a guy who's disengaged, and he's disengaged because he's 45 years old, and his back hurts, and he can't hold an RPG anymore in Afghanistan. He missed his window, and he's okay with that, he's decided to move on with his life and still hold these extreme beliefs. But it's not a guy who's de-radicalized by any means, right? Um... And we have to be willing, I mean, I think the government has to be willing to accept some level of de-radicalization versus disengagement. Um, and I think increasingly for ISIS and al-Qaeda, they are. I'm not sure they are for domestic terrorism.
1: All right. So uh, there's one last question. I'm happy to ask it. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, that difference between disengagement and de-radicalization is very important. Uh, I know at the Department of Justice, our focus was always on disengagement, on uh, harm reduction and ceasing the violent
2: behavior, uh, rather than trying to change the beliefs. I mean, in a perfect world, you basically hand off the the de-radicalization to a nonprofit or NGO, right? Um, You get someone to a point where violence is not acceptable. And maybe if they want to take up somebody else's, like somebody outside of government wants to take that on as a, as a case, they can, but the government shouldn't direct them to do so, but you just want to have the option to do so.
1: Yeah, and it's also changing behavior uh, so beliefs can follow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you Seamus so much uh, for joining us in our discussion today. And thank you to the audience for tuning in and for your excellent questions. Our next installment of Authors and Insights will take place in September. Uh, Please follow the McCain Institute on Instagram and Twitter, or check back on our website for additional updates. Have a great rest of your week, and thank you, Seamus, again.
2: Thanks for having me.